from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. It's the conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, the Wharton Leadership Program, and Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company. My newest book is called Parents Who Lead, and you can get it anywhere. Um, keep in mind that new episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time here on Sirius XM 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. I'm really glad you're here. If you're a regular listener to Business Radio, I know you've heard many conversations about mentorship. And decades of research shows that the benefits of such relationships can be profound. But the mentoring landscape is not equal for men and women, the same as pay, not equal. Part of the problem is a number of different threads to this fabric, but part of the problem is that a majority of business executives and managers are still white males. And the Center for Talent Innovation reports that 71% of executives have protégés whose gender and race match their own. In addition, women network differently. You may have seen a recent Washington Post story that highlighted the differences made even harder during the pandemic by virtual meetings on platforms like Zoom, which is the very platform that this show is being recorded on. So my guest today is on a quest to change those numbers and, and really to help change the culture in American business life and American family life too. He's already written one book on the subject, and today we're going to discuss his new book, which is coming out in fall of 2020. I am delighted to welcome Dr. David Smith to the program. David is co-author of the forthcoming book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. David, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks, Stu. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for including us and on talk about our favorite topic today. Well, uh, Listeners, uh, let me just tell you a bit more about David before we jump into the conversation. He is an associate professor of sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. His previous book, Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women, was named one of the 25 books everyone should read by Inc. Magazine and Ted Speakers when it was first published a few years ago. A former Navy pilot, Dr. Smith led diverse organizations of men and women culminating in command of a squadron in combat, and he flew more than 3,000 hours over 30 years, including combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you for your service, Dr. Smith. As a sociologist trained in military sociology and social psychology, he focuses his research on gender, work, and family issues, including gender bias in performance evaluations, dual career families, military families, women in the military, and the retention of women. David, I'm, I'm really excited to be talking with you today, and thanks again for being here. Um, there's so much about your new book that uh, is of great interest today, despite the many gains women have seen in the workplace and in higher education, the pay differential between men and women persists, as you, as you point out, and as many people have pointed out. Um, and what Arlie Hochschild, the sociologist, uh, famously described 30 years ago as the second shift, it's still there. Uh, that means that after women put in a full day of paid work outside the home, they put in a second shift at home caring for children and taking care of household chores. The current pandemic, which has so many people working from home, has only highlighted what has been an ongoing and persistent problem. So now without childcare support, it's often women who are helping their children with schoolwork, taking care of the house and putting their paid work 
second to their husbands. Why, David? Oh, why does this problem persist? Uh, that's a great question. And I think, you know, once again, we still see these persistent uh, beliefs about work and family and what paid work looks like and the value of unpaid work, which is, again, as you pointed out, largely what women have been asked to do. And that's the nurturing and the caregiving work and the running of the household. And we've seen that for decades, that women have done more of that. And, and again, it's unpaid work. And so therefore it's devalued in a, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, these gender beliefs about, about this, they continue to persist in our, in our workplace and, and at home. And the pandemic has done nothing but exacerbate that today. As you pointed out, the fact that homeschooling has become now the third shift, really, if we think about it in Arlie Hochschild's terms, mm-hmm. uh, because mothers are doing most of it today. Uh, mm-hmm. The most recent research that came out on that shows that they're the ones who are doing it. So it's just, again, reinforcing these beliefs about who should be doing which kind of work in the home and, and at work. The challenge today, of course, is that we're doing it all in the home. Yes, indeed. Uh, what, is, what do you see is the main problem that leads this, the, the, the pay gap, the gender gap uh, in pay and advancement? Uh, what is the biggest problem that we face as a society in overcoming that toward and getting us toward a more egalitarian world. Yeah, I think there's a few issues with it in particular. One is uh, they're overcoming one, the, I think many people believe that it's a myth, right? That it doesn't even, it doesn't factually exist out there and they can explain it away in, in so many, in so many different ways that, so there's part, that's part of the problem, I think in particular. Um, and the other half of that is, is understanding, you know, just how significant this, this, pay gap is out there and where does it exist and how does it exist? And so there's an awareness perspective of it. Um, Because again, I think the challenge is that a lot of organizations think that they're meritocratic, right? We have these meritocratic ideals and values that, Hey, we, we pay people what they're worth. We pay them for the value of what they, of the great work that they're doing. And so it's, it's all fair and it's all equal. The challenge with that is in a meritocratic organization, we all know that we're probably not going to be looking for bias and for inequities like that because we're fair. We're a fair and just uh, mm-hmm. organization out there. So we don't see it and we're not looking for it. So it, it's kind of ironic. There's a little bit of a paradox that's been written about when it comes to that meritocratic perspective that it's hard to see because we think we are fair and we're just. And so we don't, we don't look for it even. So developing mm-hmm. the awareness piece, I think, is really critical to it out there. The last so, so part there's, of that- So there's, there's misinformation about the, the, act, the, the reality of the pay gap. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing. And, and secondly, there is the uh, blindness uh, to any information that might become available because we don't want to see ourselves as somehow acting in a way that's unfair. Absolutely. And, and the last part of that in particular is the transparency piece. So in some, in a many organizations out there, it's taboo to talk about your pay, right? Even though, again, we want to say that we're fair and we're just and equal in, in how we pay people, but, but please don't talk about it. We don't want you discussing your, your pay and your benefits and what you're getting versus what somebody else is getting. And, mm-hmm. and so it's become very taboo to even talk about. So there's almost zero transparency until very recently where people are starting to understand that, hey, we need to be a little more transparent about trying to do this. And then, of course, there are online organizations and, and uh, sites mm-hmm. out there that are trying mm-hmm. to help with that as well. Glassdoor and others. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, this is an issue that has, uh, has been a focus of, of my own research and advocacy for over three decades. And uh, about... I think it was around eight years ago, there was a group of young men at the Wharton School in the MBA program. They called themselves the 22s. Maybe you heard about them. Uh, They called themselves the 22s because that's the percentage that, or at least at the time, the percent of difference between the average women's pay uh, and the average man's pay in America, 78%. Mm-hmm. of what a man makes is what women makes. And the 22s were committed to closing that gap. Same mission, really, as the one that you are advocating for. Um, <clears throat> so 
you know, that's just one pocket of the, of the group, you know, of committed all in allies. There are a lot of young men who, who want to make a difference. We did a study uh, comparing the class of 1992 with the class of 2012. And one of the differences we found, this was a longitudinal study, the first wave done in 92, the second wave done in 2012, the graduates of the Wharton School. One of the things we found in comparing um, the differences over time is that young men today um, see themselves as being more committed at home and being committed to uh, dual career relationships that are egalitarian. However, when they get into the workforce and a number of more recent studies uh, have demonstrated that their idealism fades. What is it? So, so there's, there's a greater awareness or greater among young people and a greater commitment to trying to, um, young men in particular, to try to make change happen. What happens as they encounter the real world? Well, you know, certainly a lot of them grew up with that, right? They were socialized into that by their parents. And, and so thank you to the, the parents that are raising children to believe that. And mm-hmm. that is one of the, one of the changes that can, ha- can occur is they will have these changes in attitudes, but they, they truly are just attitudes until you get to right. the workplace. Mm-hmm. And now, it, now we're looking for the behavioral part and we're not finding it. And, and you've probably seen a lot of this recent research that looks at that and we find the attitudinal change, but not the behavioral change. And largely, you know, again, we can't put a causality to that, but largely a lot of that we suspect is probably because you get into a workplace that is much more traditional in terms of people there with their beliefs and it's structured that way. So as we think about how work is structured or how it's created, um, it's set up in, in everything from the hours that we work to the days that we work to the, do we work in a physical office? How much do we travel? Do we work from home? Do we have flex work? All of those things in the structure of work is set up for a more of a traditional set of, again, the, the, the homemaker of being, being a wife at home and, and the mm-hmm. male breadwinner in the office. Mm-hmm. And so it's challenging when you come in with those beliefs to go into a structure that way with those attitudes and not again uh, conform right to that, and that's mm-hmm. and it's challenging. And 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 I think the other thing for men in particular is it's also hard um, when you see others out there. This is the way that they are constructing or they're thinking about work and family. That uh, that you don't want to be somebody that's different in in mm-hmm. some way. You don't want to be you don't want to be seen as as lesser than or in a stigmatized way. Also, right, that, right. But somehow you're not as manly as they are. But your book is intended to change that. And, and I want to now get into the, uh, the main ideas and, for, and practices that you've got to offer men and women for how to overcome some of those barriers to engaging your life and your work in a way that is truly um, toward an egalitarian world. Let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio. Sirius XM channel 132. I am your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're with us. My guest is Dr. David Smith, who's an associate professor of sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. And he's the co-author of the forthcoming book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. You uh, studied sociology after a career uh, as a... uh, as a pilot uh, and a leader in the Navy. <clears throat> and as you write in the book, your, um, your advisor, your dissertation advisor helped you to move on a journey of discovery yourself. And so I'm curious if you, to know, and I'm sure our listeners are too, how did you get to the point of wanting to write about this topic and become uh, an expert in the in, in in the field of allyship and what it, what it means for men to support women. What led you there? Yeah, that's a great question, and we get that a lot. And uh, and my co-author, Dr. Brad Johnson, and, and Brad's a clinical psychologist who teaches at the U.S. Naval Academy. And and Brad and I get that a lot. And and believe it or not, we get it more from women. Um, maybe that maybe that's expected, but, and I think they're skeptical of men in particular who are advocating and doing this kind of work until you have a, 
you have your, you can tell your narrative and your story about why the motivation behind doing the work. So I think it's important that people understand that. So for me, um, across a career that started at the Naval Academy as a student and all the way through my, my military career, uh, I was in various places and seeing gender integration occur in the military in a variety of different settings and seeing, again, how women were treated very differently than, than I was and my male, my male peers were largely. Um, full disclosure, you know, my wife is a retired naval officer, and I, so I had a lot of those conversations along the way with her and her experiences and seeing how it was just a very different place for me than it was for her. What did she teach you, and how did she teach you what she knew that you didn't? I think there's a lot of the, the different experiences that she had where when she would be doing some of the same things I was, and it might be in terms of an evaluation uh -huh. or how particular tasks are done in the military and the bureaucracy there, um, what the expectations were for me as opposed to how they were for her and mm -hmm. how her bosses treated her um, were just night and day in comparison. And, mm -hmm. um, and for me that, you know, I, so just listening to her own experiences and then for me then to open my eyes, go back into when once uh, Naval Aviation Squadrons were open to women and to see how the women in our squadrons, were they experiencing that same thing? You could begin to see some of that if you were looking for it, but you had to be looking for it. I, Cause I think most men probably it just went out right over our, went right by us. We were oblivious to, to a lot of it because we, we didn't know to look for it. And we didn't, well, as you say in the book, it's good to be a man. Yeah, yeah, it was. That still, we're still advantaged. We're privileged, yeah. and and it's easy and natural to not see your privilege. Absolutely, and as you, because as it's you hard to acknowledge it. What is it that makes that so difficult? Because I think, again, uh, most people, as you're probably well aware, most of us want to think that everything that we've uh, accomplished or achieved or where we are in the world, our status, that we, we did that of our own volition, right? That was based off my own work, my own, it wasn't given to me in any way. It wasn't because I'm a, a white man um, that, that suddenly that life was easier for me in some way. And it's hard because we talk about this in the book about, I love the research around kind of tailwinds and headwinds and thinking about privilege in that way. And, and matter of fact, when we talk with men, um, we often don't even use what we call the P word because privilege is such a hard and, and loaded mm. word out there. And, but if you think about it in terms of, you know, in aviation and tailwinds and headwinds, that the tailwinds that are pushing us along, you don't, you never feel those out there. And mm. they're, they're, but it's there and it's helping you and it's pushing you along. And, and yeah, you might recognize it every once in a while, but generally you just don't know. Now the challenges, the headwinds, those you always know because it took extra work. It took extra effort. It took something else to overcome and achieve mm -hmm. something. And we always remember those, those parts of it. And that's what we remember, but we don't remember the tailwinds piece mm -hmm. that was pushing us. And that's the privilege out there and why it's so hard to, one, recognize it, acknowledge it, and then learn how to use that for good. And that, you'd be, especially because, as you said at the top, uh, you know, the big, the big challenge for us as a society and, and the, you know, the, the mission that you're on is to change the level of awareness and education, mainly for men, about uh, how they've mainly had tailwinds <laughs> helping to propel them uh, and that that has been the reality where do you start? What, what's, the, what's the place where you begin that journey for those people who, first of all, are interested? Then there's the whole mass of people who don't want to hear it, don't have time for it, don't believe it. But for those people who have some interest, uh, and that's probably a lot of our listeners, uh, where do you start? Yeah, and I, and I couldn't agree with you more about the, you know, the, the group of men and people we're talking to and addressing here. And it is largely the middle, I would say it's, we call it the middle 80% because mm -hmm. we figure there's about 10% of, of the men out there that are doing really good work out there as allies right now. There's probably 10% at the bottom who don't care, apathetic, and don't want to know any more about it. And, and we're not really out there to change them. But the middle 80%, what we find is that in many ways, they're, it's men who are um, either one, they're fearful, or two, they want to help, but are not sure how to help. 
And so they're on the sidelines wondering, hmm, you know, I, I look around and we, we talked about this in terms of men being great allies at home in many ways, because they, you, you ask men about their, their uh, the important women in their lives and their, whether it's their wives or daughters or mothers. And, and they're like, they're all about gender equity and gender equality. But then when you look at their behavior and their at work, you just don't see the same level of motivation and interest. And, and again, it's because in many cases, they're either one, they're fearful, or they, it could be they're just not sure, hey, how do I, who am I to do this work? How do I get involved? What should I be doing? What if so I make a mistake? Mm -hmm. what, what is the fear based on? And then we'll get into the ignorance and then what you are advocating for and how you're helping to train people to overcome those barriers. What are people, what are men afraid of? Yeah, so I, I think there's two things. Um, one quick story. So when we first started this work back in 2015, when we were writing our first book, Athena Rising. Um, so this is pre-Me Too, right? Which happened in 2017, went widespread around, around the world. And in that research we were doing about cross-gender mentoring relationships, we found a host of reasons why men in particular, were, we, there were so many, we called these the reluctant male syndrome. Uh, because there were so many reasons why men were reluctant to engage in, in these close mentoring relationships with women in the workplace. And part of it was just a perception piece, right? That I, I don't really, uh, I, I see women, but nah, they're not really leader material. Or maybe she's not strong enough, or maybe she's not cut out for this kind of work. Uh, some of them saw them as risky investments. And this gets back to, again, our perceptions that, wow, uh, you know, she's just going to, you know, go off to have kids or start a family at some point. One, one guy even told us that, yeah, he had heard that another man that he worked with thought of women as ticking time bombs of maternity. You can't make these things up, right? And, and so these perceptions, right, they're largely unconscious bias, are, will keep you from investing your time, energy, and resources into those relationships. That's one part. Another one, interestingly, is an anxiety around what, do these, what does it look like to be a partner uh, or in a mentoring or sponsoring relationship in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And guys said, you know, hey, I'm really comfortable with these relationships with women. When I think about like my mother and how I was raised with a sister and maybe they have a daughter today, but what's a close personal or professional relationship look like in the workplace? And a lot of guys admitted they were anxious about it. And so again, what do we do when we get anxious? We avoid it, the discomfort. And what is the source, the primary source of that anxiety? Just, it's the unknown. It's the uncertainty about, again, I was socialized to have, I know what a relation, I know what a script is for a relationship with, um, with my wife, for example, or, or with a sister, but where do we, where were we given that script for women to work with women, right? In the workplace or to mentor women in the workplace or to right you, all the different kinds of professional relationships we have. We don't really have that for men in particular. And so a lot of guys would just say, ah, I just don't feel comfortable with it. So I don't know, I'm not sure what to say or do. So I just avoid it. So I don't, don't know how to act for fear of being seen as oppressive or sexually predating uh, that, or that they would be uh, inappropriately close because of the sexual connotations. Is, is that the main fear or is there more to it? Well, I think that's one of one of the fears, and we certainly heard that from men, and and we got into more of that as we thought of, as we get into 2017 and, and the work we did with right. good guys, is the the post Me Too workplaces. There was this fear uh, that men talked about that they were going to be brought up on sexual harassment claims just because they were interacting with with women at work, and you know that that's there's a lot of these myths that men tend to perpetuate in the workplace. And uh, one of them that suddenly women, they should fear women because they're suddenly scary or dangerous in the workplace. Right. And now they're not, they're not scary and they're not dangerous. Um, or that suddenly, you know, women are going to make these false claims against them. And mm -hmm. again, the evidence, there's no evidence to back that up. And mm -hmm. this is where, again, we, as men, we have to, we have to push back on that. Mm -hmm. And, the attraction piece is an interesting one that it does come up and guys are worried about, well, if I have a relationship with a woman at work, what if I find her attractive? And, mm -hmm. you know, as a social psychologist, I would tell you, it's like, well, it's a it'd be a little bit weird if you were working with a lot of women and over time, 
you didn't find some of them to be a little bit attractive. Um, I think most of us would, would agree that there are some people in, in, that we work with that are attractive. The question is not so much, will you find them attractive is what you will do. Of course. Of course. Right? Yes. As it turns out we, as men, we have, uh, we have, we have, you know, looking at functional magnetic resonance imaging, we've determined that we have frontal lobes, right? And uh, we, so we can actually use that. Example of rational decision-making. Yeah. Really? I, I didn't know that, David. You're going to have to tell us more about that when we come back <laughs> after the break. When we're also going to explore how to overcome the anxieties, the fears, the uh, ignorance, because it's in men's best interests, men's best interests to become allies. We haven't talked yet about the many benefits that come not just to society, not just to women, not just to business and other organizations, but to individual men uh, in becoming allies, there is career benefit. It might seem paradoxical, but it's true as you advocate for in your book. Uh, all that and more when we come back. We're just going to take a short break here. Don't go away. I'm going to be continuing my conversation with Dr. David Smith, who's the author, co-author of the forthcoming Good Guys. How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. I'm Stu Friedman, and this is Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman. And my guest today is Dr. David Smith, who's an associate professor of sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. His research focuses on gender, work, and family, and he's co-author of the forthcoming book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. And this is something that uh, benefits not just women, but men too. So let's get, let's get to that uh, at the top of the second half of our show, David. What are the benefits to men in becoming better, stronger, more forceful, and effective allies? Why should, just from an instrumental, self-interested point of view, men get into it? Yeah, great question. And, and there is a whiff them, right? There's a what's in it for me, a self-interest piece here for guys. And, and it largely gets overlooked. And people forget about this one. That, so what we find is that when men are better allies, and so they have these, they have a, a different network, right, of, of kind of their inner circle of, of friends and of peers and, and people that they're mentoring and being mentored by and sponsoring and being sponsored by, that guess what? They have increased access to all kinds of different information, different parts of the organizations mm -hmm. that they work in that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Of course, they have these more, broader, more diverse networks, both within the organization mm -hmm. and outside the organization. And my favorite on this whole thing is that we find that they have increased or enhanced interpersonal skills. So we find more empathy, better EQ, which obviously connects to them as leaders, right? It makes them better leaders and they're more effective leaders in their organization and relating to more people. Uh, their employees and their customers, clients. So it's the inter inside facing and the outside facing part of their work, right? And the beautiful part of that from a work family perspective is that as you improve your empathy and EQ, you don't check that at the door at the end of the day when you go home, uh, back when we used to work in brick buildings. And, and mm -hmm. go, when you go back to your family, guess what? You're a better partner, better parent as well. So there's such great Again, great research out there showing the benefits to to wonderful, you know, diverse allyship. Where, if if someone was interested in learning more about both their fears and what it is that they don't know, what what are the first couple things that you advise people in uh, in your book and in your talks? Yeah, so so two pieces to this. One is that uh, at some point you need to have these conversations with the, the women that you feel closest and most comfortable with, and whether that's at work or at home, and hopefully eventually more at work as well, mm -hmm. that uh, you can ask them about their experiences and have mm -hmm. these conversations and be very transparent about why you're asking, right? That you're, mm -hmm. you're looking there to become, to understand and to become a better, a better ally here and to help, you know, how improve the work experience for everyone at work. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's... And that works as an approach? 
It does, but I, I would we also find that sometimes you need to ask um, if it's okay to ask, right? Because sometimes we're not comfortable and we're not really sure, depending on the relationship you have with with these with these women at work, that it might you might want to ask if it's okay to ask about their experiences as opposed mm-hmm. to just jumping out there and doing that. Mm-hmm. We also suggest that men ought to do their homework first. So in other words, we shouldn't always be placing the burden on somebody else to educate us on. Right. You should know. Why are you asking me? (laughs) I don't want to have to explain this to you. Don't you get it? Is something that someone might say or feel if they weren't saying exactly. Absolutely. So what what kind of homework is good to do if you, if you don't feel comfortable or if you're like, you might be um, offending you know, a, a woman by asking her about her experience and compelling her to educate you. What are some other ways that men can get educated fast? Certainly, uh, there, there's plenty to read out there, whether you're reading books or you're, you're online. And, and certainly in, in the digital format today, there, there is so much to, to, be, to read out there. The other thing is there's a lot of great, and especially right now during the pandemic, there's a lot of great online resources in terms of webinars. You, and so in 30 minutes, you can listen to experts talk about these topics and, and really get some really interesting narratives and stories that go with it where you can connect that maybe into your own, your own business or your own industry. The other one that we find more and more of are when you think about women's leadership conferences or women's leadership initiatives. And, and often, even within your own organization, we find affinity groups or employee resource groups out there. What a great in in-house resource right there at your fingertips. You probably even know some of those people who are in those groups. You might even decide that you want to join and be- become a member. Often they're, they're open like a women's sure. employee resource group. There's men who often are, are members of those groups. It's a, everyone's welcome. So go attend and think about how you're going to show up though. Cause that's another important thing that we as men have to think about if we go into these spaces like a women's ERG or a women's leadership conference that is, again, largely for women and, and occupied by women, how do we show up in those spaces? It's not easy. I have done it myself, uh, again, for decades. And it's, it's scary, intimidating to you know, stand up in front of 300 executive women and, and try to talk to them about how to integrate work in the rest of your life and to come across as credible. Uh, and, 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 you know, sensitive and, and aware of what it's like uh, from the other side. What, what I have found is that when you admit your ignorance and demonstrate your real interest based on something that matters to you and, and how what you're trying to do is to be helpful and, and to convey that through a personal story, as you were saying at the top, of why this issue matters, that that can help. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's fraud. It's, it's tricky. And, and I think your advice to be thoughtful about how do you want to show up? What are, you, what are you going to say? What are you going to not say? How can you contribute? This is something that's going to benefit you. Uh, it's going to benefit your company, your teams, your your family life, our society. But it's not easy. Uh, any change is difficult, right? So that is uh, excellent example, uh, excellent uh, advice. Um, can you give a, perhaps more specific, you know, guidance on best ways for men to show up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you said, I think for those of us who have been doing this work and and being in those spaces a lot, have have that firsthand feeling and knowledge and understanding of what that's like to walk in there and to be in a a conference of twelve thousand women and you're one of the twenty men there, uh, which is pretty pretty typical of the numbers we often find there. Um, one of the first things we tell guys is when you think about showing up in these spaces is to one, your job is to go in and listen and not just listen in the ways that maybe you've thought about listening in the past, but listen, we we think about this in terms of, we call it generous listening and you're listening without the intent that you're ever going to contribute or say anything whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You're not going to, you're not going to add anything. You're just there to listen. And to what about all the great points I have to make to illustrate my intelligence and farsightedness? I just uh, leave those at the door, David. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Not appropriate <laughs> here. Absolutely. 
And, and just That's good advice. Yeah. I, and, and I think that it's okay to ask some questions when it, after you, you spend some time listening, maybe some clarifying questions to better understand. And again, with the, I think the pretext in there of what you're, why you're trying to, what you're trying to understand and why you're trying to understand it. There is a point though, where I think it's okay, especially if you think about attending as a member of like a women's DRG that mm -hmm. you should be thinking about, all right, so what can I do that I've been listening? I've been developing my awareness. I kind of have a better understanding of the challenges. Now what's my role mm -hmm. right in the organization into making that those experiences better. And, mm -hmm. and you can ask those questions about, Hey, if I could do one thing this mm -hmm. week that would make your experience better in the workplace, what could I do? What's that one thing that I could do right now in my position that I'm in. That sounds like a very practical and useful question. What kinds of things are you likely to hear when you ask that question? What have you heard? Well, my, one of my, one of my favorite bits of advice was, uh, was from Michelle Obama. She got asked that question and she said, just tell men to be better. <laughs> okay. Not helpful, Michelle. Yeah. Who I, I am a great fan of and have written a chapter in one of my books about her. So yeah. But that's not very specific. No. Uh, I, I know that, yeah, be, be better is, okay, I get it. It's, you know, it makes the point. What else have you heard that, that is perhaps a little bit more specific? Yeah, and we, we've got these, there's so many of them, uh, you know, Stu, that when we were writing the book, we, we just had to organize all these, all these mic, we call them kind of micro behaviors, all these uh -huh. micro skills, all these different things in different settings that you can do. You know, for example, um, when, when, when a, um, a biased or a, even a sexist comment or joke or reference is made, say something. Don't be, don't be silent and don't wait for one of the women. Don't look around to see if one of the women are going to say something. Say something. And then when you do, when you do say something uh, to disrupt, right? Because I think other people in the room probably understood that, hey, that was just, that didn't land right or it didn't come off right or it was clearly biased and the person didn't even recognize it. Um, you have to own that. And you can't say, oh, hey, John, don't say that because Patty's here right? No, it's not okay because I don't find it okay. And here's why. And then have your, have your explanation ready for that. Um, this is the two parts to allyship. Brad and I talk about this all the time with guys is one is, is the individual piece that you do when how you show up right every day and hold yourself accountable. The, the harder part is the public allyship piece. And that's, this is getting into that of how do we, when we see things, how do we hold others accountable and, and not just other people, but how do we hold the, the organization or the practice or the process accountable? So if, for example, there's uh, unfair pay, how do, you, how do you check that? How do you call it out? How do you correct it and fix it? Uh, how do you look for bias in the system in terms of the everyday practices and behaviors that we have out there? But that's, you know, that's kind of at the organizational level. Um, we just recently, you, you may have seen the comments that, uh, that our president said recently about Secretary Pompeo's wife doing, being home doing the dishes. And we were, just, we were just talking about this yesterday and the fact that, well, you know, nobody, nobody really in, obviously called that out right there in person, but the, there were people who were saying things and we were talking about this afterwards that that's not okay, right? Because you're reinforcing... 20th century old traditional beliefs about work and family mm -hmm. about who should be at home doing doing the dishes and who should be at work doing the important work and and vice versa um, but you have to as an ally you can't let those things go right there's an expectation that you're going to hold yourself and others mm -hmm. accountable right and we're going to call these things out and women expect us to do that that's the be better that's yeah. being better right let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm glad you're with us today. I'm speaking with Dr. David Smith, who's an associate professor of sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College, and he's the co-author of the forthcoming Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. Let's go back to the home world, though, where, you know, it's, it's every day. Uh, where you have opportunities to show up as an ally. 
and, in, and in particular, in these pandemic times, when so many of us are working from home with no, no separation physically between our work lives and our family lives, as, as you noted at the top, um, what, are, what are some of the keys for men to be mindful of in terms of how to show up as an ally for women in your home? Yeah, and, and I think we're getting, as men right now, for many, many men who have not been aware of what's going on at home, they're getting your, their upfront experience of, and seeing it in person right now firsthand. So it's really interesting and to see how women uh, are doing the juggling and how much of a struggle it really is for them there. So part of that is, is, is developing that awareness of what that experience looks like. And then the question is, what are they doing about it? And it's interesting, there's been a few things out there. One is, you know, sometimes men think they're doing more than they really are. It's like, well, I take out the trash and, you know, I mow the lawn and I do these kinds of things, but we're not doing a lot of the everyday things that require constant, it's a constant battle there at home in, in terms of doing work, whether you have children or not. And men are getting a chance to see that. And the question is, you know, are you really doing your fair share? And what does that look like? Mm -hmm. If you don't know, our, our advice to men is, well, ask your partner for, a, for an audit. Do a household chores audit real quick. Um, Better Life Lab with uh, Bridget Schulte has a, uh, had a little hack uh, organizer tool. It was a, a huge Excel spreadsheet where you could use it to sit down and see. And you can bring your kids into this too if you have kids and sit down and say, who's doing what? How long does it take? Right. And, and look at the balance, look at the balance sheet at the end and, mm -hmm. and see, is it fair? And if it's not fair, or if you ask for a verbal audit from your partner and she tells you that, Hey, you really aren't pulling your, your weight here, dude. Um, and here's some things I could really use your help on to make it this more fair. Don't push back and argue with her. Just get busy doing it mm -hmm. and, and, and start to level that. The, the other Another tool, that, let me just, yeah. Uh, quickly let you know one of the things that we write about in parents who lead uh, and you know the partnerships that are parenting together one of the first uh, exercises we ask partners to do is is an assessment of what we call the four-way view how important is each of the different domains to you in your life your work your home your community and your private self and where's your attention in a typical week or in the last week or so uh, on a percentage basis so take 100 points, divide them up according to how important each domain is to you, and then another 100 points to indicate how much of your attention is devoted to each of those different parts of your life. And now guess what you think your partner would say about their importance and you know, allocation of attention. And you both do that and then compare. Boom. <laughs> it's all right there. Uh, the the differences and that becomes a great catalyst for a dialogue about uh, you know starting first and foremost as you point out with the reality what is the reality and how we see it differently and isn't that important for us to then address and then work towards solutions for creating a greater sense of fairness uh, so Bridget Schulte's tool uh, the four-way view that we write about in parents who lead these are simple to think about not easy to execute on though right because it's uncomfortable to to realize as most do that you think you're doing more as a man than you than than your partner sees absolutely and you know and i think but it's also important for your kids to see it too right as we talked about that? before at the beginning it's so important because we're changing beliefs and we're changing attitudes and we're, we're affecting their trajectories down the road. So it's really important. And, and that's one of the things that men have been talking about here recently is now that they're spending more time in particular, we talked to um, several men whose partners um, are in the healthcare industry and because they're having to work, not work from home, they're having to actually go out on the front lines. And these men are working from home. They're carrying more of of the share of the work at home than they have ever typically done. And they're doing it for a longer period of time. It's not like doing it for a day or even a week. Yeah. Now they're doing it for months. months. And mm -hmm. Talking about the, how much they've really appreciated the opportunity to not just help with tasks for the kids, but actually to do the emotional bonding piece. 
mm-hmm. right? And to really build relationships with their children. And the men have said it's been, it's been life-changing for them. to see That has been a silver lining of this pandemic is the greater uh, awareness of what it's like to be an active uh, family member for people who are accustomed to being working all the time. Uh, and, and that's more true for men than for women, although it's true for many women as well. It has also given uh, rise to a greater consciousness and awareness of the value that child care workers and teachers play in you know, creating a, uh, an infrastructure of support for our families. And so one of my hopes is that we will see a upsurge of, of uh, political will uh, to give a greater support for and resources for uh, those who care for our children because now people are realizing, wow, these teachers, how do they do it? I'm going out of my mind after three seconds of trying to you know, do these homeschooling lessons. Teachers should be paid more. And I, and I firmly believe that not only because my youngest child, my daughter, is a school teacher, but because that's what sane societies do. They invest in the people who are caring for their children. All right, sorry for that public service announcement digression, but it's to your point, right, that men are becoming more aware of what it takes to really make a family work now that they're home. So what can they, appreciating it, what, what, what advice do you have for men who are struggling with that and realizing, oh my gosh, I can't do it all. Yeah, and, and certainly uh, some of the recent research that came out where men have been doing some of this more, more of this child care in some cases or the yeah. domestic household response, they're like, wow, this is really hard. Yes. And the women are like, no, this, it's a little bit harder maybe during the pandemic, but the guys are like, no, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. And so there's a greater appreciation of it. So the, the question is, you know, when we, when we create a new normal, whatever that is, we mm-hmm. rework work, can we make work more equitable for everyone and take and learn from these experiences and take that back? Both at, you know, whatever level you are in your organization, can we take that back and go, wow, you know, telework actually you know, I can do my job and be just as productive, if not more productive in some cases, Mm -hmm. flexible work arrangements. And I want that when I go back to work. And that would be wonderful if we could have more of that for our company. Mm -hmm. Um, And and also, it helps to destigmatize that for women, in particular, who are the ones who tend to, Mm -hmm. you know, to use telework more, even though it's not as available for them as it is for men, generally Mm -hmm. out there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the childcare piece is so important. You hit on it from a home, from a schooling perspective, but the other half of that obviously is, is just a broader childcare. And right now when most of the childcare programs that we were using before the pandemic are not available, um, before we can move forward, we've got to figure out how to make ex- accessible, affordable childcare out there for, for all of our employees. And, and that's something for our government to work on. That's something mm-hmm. for our, our leaders of our corporations to think about how they can do that for, the, for their employees. Yes. We've got to do that. So vote for the people who are going to support public support for childcare and for teachers in America, people. If you wanna be helping us to recover and become a better society, Uh, as a result of this terrible time and the lessons, the hard lessons we're learning. What do you hope to see? Uh, We've only got a couple minutes left here, David. What's your great hope for for the future of um, uh, men's and women's roles in society? What do you want to see happen? Back to the partnership. I think if we could be true partners, both at home and at work, I think society will be so much better. Our corporations will make more money. Our families will be in, in much better places. And, and I think that's a, it's a win, win, win for everybody on that. And that's, and that's the goal. And, you know, again, the, the pandemic has been, you know, terrible and there have been huge losses for people in terms of, mm-hmm. of life and health and financial uh, jobs. I mean, it had been tragedies all across the board. But we are going to come out of this. And when we do come out of it, we we need to think about what we learned and how we can apply that. Because I think this really is a golden opportunity 
to really make work more equitable and, and not just from a gender perspective, but for really for everyone. And mm -hmm. we've also learned that paid sick leave is so critical and, mm -hmm. and how, again, it's affecting women and women of color in particular, much more so than it is for men out there. So that's our, that's our hope um, that we can do this both in and men, if we can use what we've learned, take that back with us and whatever level of the organization you're in, you know, advocate for that change and be, and be that ally for everyone. So last, last point, 20 seconds. Uh, what's the most important bit of advice you've got coming out of good guys? Most important bit of advice. Well, uh, lots of them, but I, I think the, the first part is, is that as men, we have to, one, um, understand our motivation for doing this work. And often that requires us to have a personal connection, right, mm -hmm. with the, either whether it's through somebody you in your family or it's somebody at work. You need to hear those experiences and to have mm -hmm. that personal connection to the motivation to do the work. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that, we can, we can begin to work on, we have to develop an awareness of where reality is in terms of experiences so that we can get in touch with that sense of justice we have to mm -hmm. really move things forward and understand that the only way to really do this is go back and integrate this into um, our business, right? In terms of our business outcomes, it's got to be, again, tied to the, the work that we do. But it starts with the conversation. And that's unfortunately where we have to end ours. David, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. How can listeners learn more about the great work you're doing? You can reach us on our websites. Mine is uh, davidgsmithphd.com. And you can see where we are and you can see the books out there. And I hope everybody gets a chance to read Athena Rising and our new book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. David, thanks again for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me. And thank you for joining us on the show today. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have a question about something you heard on the show, you can just email me. I am friedman at wharton.upenn.edu and our station is business radio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. I am at Stu Friedman and edited free versions of our show are available as podcasts at workandlifepodcast.com. You can also find those at totalleadership.com, uh, .org rather, totalleadership.org where you can find all kinds of information, free videos, chapters from my books, and other stuff at TotalLeadership.org. Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing us, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Sirius XM's POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. I'm Julie Mason. Hi, I'm Michael Smirconish. I'm Tim Farm. And every day we track all the news and events from Washington, D.C. and around the world. I love politics. We have discussions. And the best analysts in Washington. Just talking about politics, the serious and the absurd. And on POTUS, we'll give you news and analysis from inside Washington, D.C. With people who cover this story every day. That's the politics of the United States. Sirius XM's POTUS 124. Or listen on the Sirius XM app.